You guys all right? So old geezer ran us off. He didn't run us off. Well, he was weird. Yes. I felt sorry for him. Oh, yeah? Well, how do you know it wasn't some crazy old kook who likes to chop up pretty girls by moonlight? <laughs> yeah, they always get the pretty ones first. Well, if that's the case, then you girls have absolutely nothing to fear. Uh, very funny garlic mouth. saw it on linden street the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films exploitation oddities beloved classics and all points in between i'm your host chris roberts inviting you to join us here at the linden street cinema experience theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past if you're new to the show thank you so much for joining us now, this isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, some information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Now, fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. It's March, and you know what that means. We're kicking off a brand new monthly theme for some films that we're about to show. And hey, this offering is coming up entitled Mental Gymnastics. That's a selection of some films we think you're really going to love. So this week, the LSCE is going for horror, screening the 1979 supernatural slasher cult classic, Tourist Trap. Join us! Well, hi there. Here we are, finding ourselves in March. And the Midwest is in the grips of what I can only describe as being a very slushy start to the spring. The dogs on staff here at the LSCE are doing their very best with their attempts to kill both my wife and I, forcing us to try to chase after them over ice-slicked patios and dragging in copious amounts of mud. It's a time of renewal. Masks are coming off. More and more people are out there getting vaxxed moving past this awful pandemic that has so tightly gripped us all as the first flowers begin to punch their way up through the cold ground in my yard. All of this, a promise of burgeoning, feculent green, is now set against a backdrop of international turmoil. I know. I know. We just couldn't slide into something normal. Now we had to go and make the world a stupider, crazier place. So, that being said, hey, what better time to roll out a new monthly theme? This time focusing on films that really harness the power of just what the human mind can do. Selecting a group of films that show off psychic powers, telekinesis, and other such talents that are caught on celluloid in a little celebration that we're calling Mental Gymnastics. 
and honestly, I think this week's slasher is going to be just the thing to make us forget some of this general yuck that's still going on outside. So, I have to say, full disclosure, I honestly didn't see this week's film until I was well into my 30s. I had avoided it because I had read a few jaded, and I will say misplaced, reviews by some who kept trying to compare it to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they were very quick to dismiss it as just a pale imitation. Now, I'll give this to you straight. I myself, I, I'm not a mega fan of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or let me rephrase. I'm not a fan of the whole series. I do have a deep and abiding respect for the original film. I like it just fine. Um, I, I like the sequel. It's a comedy, but it's still decent. But, you know, I can basically rationalize, no, I don't need to see a paler, lesser form of something I already thought was pretty good. Why would I want to go and see a copycat when there's so many other cheesy, fun, and other outright bad films that are at least more original notions, and plus, I can have fun? So, years passed with me purposely ignoring the cinematic offering that was Tourist Trap. And I'll flat out tell you now, I was categorically wrong for doing so. So, well, yeah, some could make comparisons that you got your lost teens stumbling out off the beaten path for a bit of rural horror. Yeah, that's the same thing you're going to find in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But honestly, that's really where the similarities end. And what you're left with with this film is a strange and frightening little amalgam of a horror mashup. The offering that is neither fish nor fowl. And it's one that throws so much weird and crazy at the viewer, it's rather impossible to say that the experience is not a memorable one, whether or not you even liked it. But I would say it should come off as surprisingly fresh. But truly, if we're going to talk about this film, then we first have to get down to brass tacks and talk about the man who both wrote and directed it. The one, the only, David Schmoller. David Schmoller was born on December 8, 1947, in Louisville, Kentucky. Yet, his family ended up relocating to Texas when he was still in his youth in grade school. He ended up going on to study at the University of Texas at Austin, and he began his undergrad work studying general media production that would get him into television, radio, and film. Now, being a Texan, he had picked up Spanish in his youth and was thus fluent, and that allowed him to have certain work opportunities as an undergrad that others would not have. Case in point, in 1968, when the Olympics were held in Mexico City, he got to be an interpreter and help out with the news reporting on the state of the Olympics. And this is a skill that would come back to pay off big later in his career. So by the time he's in grad school now, still studying filmmaking, he was working on his final thesis project, his own student film, a little story that he had drafted entitled The Spider Will Kill You, which he himself has described as being a Twilight Zone short that's all about a blind man who falls in love with one of his mannequins. And of course, during the arc of that story, the mannequins kill. 
While he was in the process of making that picture, that's when Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. And Schmuller liked its rural aesthetic and he liked the structure of the film. It, he sort of tied it back to that same source material that was the inspiration for both Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho, you know, the serial killer Ed Gein. So, thinking that imitation was the sincerest form of flattery, Schmuller decided that he wanted to do his own version of that story, at least his own take on it, something with his own flair, and thus he tailored his thesis film to really ape those same motifs. His student film was quite well-received for the day. It actually was nominated for a Student Film Academy Award, but he would go on to lose to another student there at the time, a young man by the name of Robert Zemeckis, who had shot his own little movie, Field of Honor. Still, Schmoller got to secure a runner-up spot, and he was awarded by famed director William Friedkin, so that was a real shot in the arm. He graduated, got an agent, and headed out into the world of entertainment, starting first working on the NBC 1977 dramatic series James at 15, before getting the chance to snag a paid internship funded by the AFI to work under director Peter Hyams on his 1978 conspiracy thriller Capricorn One. As he would tell it to the website Terror Trap back in 1999, Peter Hyams was very generous with his time, and I was fortunate. I spent six months, every day, all day, watching how a film was made. When I would go on to direct my own first feature that year, I at least knew when to call action. Now, for his first film, Schmoller decided that he would go back and rewrite and adapt his student film into being a big screen feature. And he ended up partnering with writer J. Larry Carroll, himself a fellow University of Texas graduate, and a guy who had served as a producer on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. So this is a guy who knows how to get stuff done when it comes to making a low-budget horror movie. Carol helped with the script and even agreed to help secure financing as a producer on the project, and that gave the entire ordeal legs, so much so that it started to attract talent from the up-and-coming generation of directors who were just starting out. Nicholas von Sternberg and David Weiler were brought in as well, themselves sons of famed directors, Joseph von Sternberg and Billy Wilder. Now, von Sternberg would serve as the cinematographer under Schmoller, while Wilder would be the second assistant director. With this sort of talent on hand, Schmoller was hopeful that he could at least see a payday come, and he really wanted John Carpenter to come on board and direct the picture. But producer Carroll would end up nixing that idea, not wanting to lose profits to paying Carpenter, and instead had insisted that no, Schmoller should take the helm, directing his own project. They got Charles Band to come on board as the chief financier and producer. Now, you gotta understand, these were the days before Band had established Empire Pictures, or long before even establishing Full Moon Entertainment. So he was still just a director of low-budget B-films who would moonlight with productions. Thus, this would be one of those 15 or so odd films between the early 70s and the mid-1980s that would be a Charles Band production. Now, originally, the script was penned to have our main antagonist having all of this happen with animatronic mannequins doing his bidding and making kills. 
the telekinesis that our villain displays, though, in the script, aside from the cash, that was Charles Band's only real contribution to this project. And Schmuller initially didn't like the idea, but it started to grow on him as they were working on the film, and so he kept it in. Originally, this picture was budgeted to be made for $300,000. But thanks to Schmuller doing a favor for one director, Joe Dante, who at the time was working on making his 1979 romp, Piranha. Hey, we covered that movie. Go back, check that episode out. It's a great one. Well, Schmuller stepped in and acted as an interpreter for both Dante and the Italian composer Pino Donaggio to discuss what Dante was actually looking for when he was making his movie. Now, based on that interaction of acting as an interpreter, Schmoller had made himself a connection, and within a few months he was putting his own project together, he was able to convince Donaggio to come and score his film for him. Which was great, but it caused producer Band to have to cough up an additional $50,000 now to pay off an Italian for his time. But it was a choice that would eventually become worth it. When it came to casting, Schmuller lucked out here. They secured Chuck Connors, who was not their first choice, but he was the choice available. Connors was the pro-athlete turned actor who most people would know now looking back as television's The Rifleman. But some of you may recognize him as the Hansy son, Buck Hannessy, from the 1958 western The Big Country. Or you might think of him as the slimy security specialist, Fielding, in the 1973 science fiction film Soylent Green. But at this time in his career, Connors was experiencing a bit of a slump, and he was actually savvy enough to see that horror films were on the rise with the youth in America. And so, his goal was if he could sort of experience a renaissance by becoming a new generation's Vincent Price, he was all for it. Connors was the name for this film. Yet, it also had a bit of young talent going on here. You got yourself a young, pre-Charlie's Angels, Tanya Roberts, showing up for the role of Becky. And while she had done a few plays and had shown up in a few small roles in several films, this was actually considered a pretty large part for her. Almost every other cast member here, Jocelyn Jones, John Van Ness, Robin Sherwood, Dawn Jeffrey Nelson, and Keith McDermott, all of them were unknowns at the time, both keeping things on this project cheap and giving them a shot at stardom. Truth be told, though, because it was Connors, there were some minor personality conflicts, and he was really at the heart of all of them. Now, if anybody goes back and reads anything about Chuck Connors, this should really not come as a surprise. Connors was, let's call him a unique individual. He would still hold the record of being a pro athlete who started playing basketball with the Boston Celtics in the late 1940s and then transitioned to play Major League Baseball, ending up playing for the Chicago Cubs. Great trendsetter. But when it comes to acting, he was known for being, well, honestly, not one of the greatest guys to work with. He'd often get liquored up. He'd challenge other actors, sort of questioning their masculinity on set. 
picking fights often that way, or he would give directors a hard time, accusing them of not knowing what they wanted or what they were doing. And the stories of Connors being a right asshole on various film sets, they abound. Here, in 1979, the bloom was well off of the proverbial rose on his career, so Connors actually was rather better behaved in this scenario. That being said, he still had some issues. He would go on to razz and give a hard time to first-time director Schmoller for his indecisiveness with setting up the shots. He also clashed with the classically trained Jocelyn Jones, who would sit there in between takes and would try to do breathing exercises and warm-ups before she would shoot scenes. See, to Connors, if the director says, in the next scene, you're going to be scared, you just act scared. Done. And basically, he told her to her face that her method acting was quite ridiculous, which caused a bit of an argument, but eventually everybody got along and the job got done. Shooting for the film would take place over 24 days in March of 1978, mainly shot in the Sama Ranch in California, with a few pickup shots happening in and around Los Angeles proper. Now, when it came to filming, some of the scenes highlighted the supernatural elements. Schmoller actually got rather creative when it came to putting the sort of telekinetic effects on camera. For example, when the character Woody gets attacked by unseen forces right at the beginning of the film, the cabinet and all the various holders that are supposed to be on the wall that open up and start shooting items at him, they were actually nailed to the ceiling, which would allow crew to open and close the doors via pulleys, and they would drop items at the camera, giving them the appearance of flying straight across the room, tormenting young Woody. When the film was done being shot and was finally in the can, nobody was more shocked than director Schmuller over the MPAA coming back and giving the film a rating of PG. He had thought he had both penned and shot something that was horrific, something that was disturbing, something that, well, I mean, there is some blood. It's something that he wouldn't let his own children see. He had figured that this was an independent film, so therefore the ratings board was going to give him a hard time and thus would give him an R. That's what he was expecting. He was banking on it. But instead, the results stunned him. But that all said, folks, you've been ever so good listening to me prattle on about all of this. So how's about I shut up and we get on to that trailer? What do you say? Every year, hundreds of young people travel the country and disappear. God help those who get caught in the tourist trap. Tourist Trap, where beautiful young people looking for excitement are tricked, terrorized, trapped, See. No, no. Terror you can feel. 
heart-stopping suspense that makes this the nightmare that never ends. Something crazy is going on at the tourist trap. on a tired-looking teen, Woody, as played by Keith McDermott, heading down a hilly dirt road, carrying with him a flat tire, trying to follow the signs he sees along the way, promising him that gas and eats will be available at the approaching rest stop. He has left his girlfriend, Eileen, as played by Robin Sherwood, hanging out by their vehicle, where she passes her time sunbathing, reading magazines, and listening to the radio. Eventually, their friends, who are coming along with them, Jerry, is played by John Van Ness, Becky, is played by Tanya Roberts, and Molly, is played by Jocelyn Jones, were all following behind in their Volkswagen 181 Jeep. They end up encountering Eileen next to the road, and they stop and sit with her while she waits for Woody to return. Woody eventually reaches the filling station, noting that it's attached to a diner and it's part of a larger attraction, an Old West-themed wax museum. And he goes inside, calling out for service and asking for help, but finds the place to be empty, even though the lights are on. Woody hears what he thinks are the cries and soft moans of a woman coming from a back room, and he begins to call out if anyone is there, entering, hoping to find people. He enters the room where some cabinets and supplies are stored, only to be horrified when a mannequin of a woman launches itself across the room directly at him, violently screaming and then laughing, scaring the young man terribly. As he attempts to leave, he finds the door that he walked through has now been locked, trapping him in, surrounding him with more eerie laughter, and now he gets to see that the window of the room is slamming open and shut by itself, with more dummies crawling out of hiding places, breaking through the glass, and objects in the room begin thumping around. As he attempts to break through the door to escape, while all the time calling for help, he finds himself held in place by an unseen force, which will not let him go, pinning his body to the doorframe. And then the cabinet across the room opens and begins to fling cans, glass jars, and tools at the youth. While Woody is able to sort of dodge the various heavy items, even a hunting knife as it flies his way, he ends up being done in by a length of metal pipe that hones in on his position with great force, driving itself through the young man, killing him, dampening the floor with his blood. Woody's body is then roughly carried off-screen, away by an unseen, grumbling man. Tired of waiting, the group of friends all pile into the jeep and head up the road, trying to follow the same path to the filling station that they think Woody was headed to, following the signs for Slauson's Lost Oasis Rest Stop and Western Museum. As they drive up the road, they find the spare tire that Woody was carrying, but no Woody. As he attempts to continue on to the rest stop, Jerry is shocked when the car inexplicably stops functioning. The engine just dies on him and refuses to turn over. 
So while he struggles to fix it, the girls head out exploring and find the aforementioned oasis and a swimming hole complete with a waterfall. I don't think you should. Come on, Molly, relax for once. We can't go swimming anyway. Why not? We didn't bring our bathing suit. So? Who needs a bathing suit? While Jerry fights with the engine, the girls end up frolicking and swimming, unaware that they're being watched from the shoreline. A man comes out of the trees and approaches them, revealing to be the property owner, Mr. Slauson himself, as played by Chuck Connors, who talks to the ladies, catching them at a great disadvantage, and while he seems to be a little bit off, he's also friendly enough. Howdy. You kids enjoying yourselves? How about you, Missy? You look to be having a good time. Yes, sir. Used to be I'd charge 75 cents a day to swim here. Not no more, though. Used to be I'd have 25, 30 visitors a day here. And then the government decided to build a new highway. What's your name? Molly. Molly? Yeah, I like that. I don't get too many visitors no more. Seems that most folks use that new highway. I guess they figured it's going to get them to where they're going fast. Everyone's in such a damn hurry these days. Do you know why that is, Molly? I don't either. There's not a place like this in the whole world. Uh, what uh, brings you kids to these parts, anyway? We didn't mean to trespass. Uh, our friend got lost. A friend? You see, uh, their car broke down. Uh, this, uh, friend of yours, is she a girl, too? No, he's a he. His name is Woody. Well, can't help you. Ain't seen no one in these parts for weeks now. I thought I'd better come down and warn you. You all best leave before it gets dark. What happens at dark? Well, this here hole fills up with water moccasins. <laughs> If you feel something wiggling around your feet, it's just the early ones come to find a good spot. <laughs> the girls end up heading back to Jerry and the car, only to find the old man is waiting for them there. And he offers to take the whole lot of them up to his place in his car. And then he can get some tools and return with Jerry to fix theirs. The group take him up on his offer, and he shows them around his mechanically powered wax museum. While he's showing off his various attractions, he's a really good host. Slauson tells them stories of his youth, he offers them all cold beers, impressing them with his unsettling animatronics. But even through all of this, there's still something a little bit off about this place. Too bad you had to close this place down, Mr. Slauson. I'm real sorry. Well, thank you. Thank you, Molly. Hell, that ain't the worst thing that ever happened to me. 
Well, I was kicked out of the Navy when I was 19, kicked in the head when I was 20, and kicked into jail when I was 21. And those were just to warm me up for what life had in store for me. No, sir, it's been a lot worse. You get to be my age, you start to understand what uh, living's all about. These are so lifelike. Yeah, my brother got pretty good at making those figures. Your brother made these? He got so good, they hired him away from me. Folks out in the city did. He's out there still making dummies for one of them wax museums. Watch this. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? <laughs> Used to scare the hell out of kids and Yankee tourists. Quite a gimmick. How'd you do that? No, my brother did that. He was real good with mechanical things, too. You know, gears, motors, pulleys, all that sort of stuff. He was a real talent. <laughs> Is that where you live? Nope. Uh, I live right here in the museum. Who lives over there? Well, uh, nobody, really. Just Davy. Who's Davy? What, Davy Crockett? Who else? You see, he and General Custer here couldn't get along, so I had to separate them. <laughs> you will girls mind uh, guarding a place while me and Jerry fix up his Jeep? Guard it from what? Oh, uh, souvenir hunters. Mr. Slauson? Can I use your phone? Oh, sure. Help yourself. But it doesn't work. I got nobody to call. When Jerry and Mr. Slauson go to leave to fix the car, Eileen, who is still suspicious of Slauson's answers, figures that they may actually have a phone in the other house on the property. So she decides to head over to investigate for herself. As she goes into the house, she hears a conversation between a man and a woman going on. But when she enters the room, all she finds is a bunch of lifelike and even rather grotesque mannequins. Ones who start to call towards her, whisper at her, follow her with their eyes. She's thoroughly creeped out, and she begins to try to leave. And that's when she encounters a frightening stranger wearing a cloak and seemingly sporting a mask of Woody's face, with a tongue that hangs grotesquely out of his mouth, who begins to stalk her through the home. Eileen does attempt to escape back to the other girls in the museum, but she ends up being strangled to death with her own scarf by, again, an unseen force. Worried that Eileen hasn't come back yet, Becky and Molly start to wonder what's going on, mulling over what has become of her and what could be taking the men. Mr. Slauson arrives back without Jerry, telling the ladies that Jerry took his truck back into town and he walked up to the house, complimenting Becky on having such a good man in her life. Mr. Slauson then shares a story with them about how wonderful his own wife was and how they wanted to make this place into a fine resort with a hotel, wistfully reflecting that they couldn't, though, because she died young from cancer. 
His mood then darkens when he's informed that Eileen went up to the house, and he tells the girls to stay put while he goes to investigate. Mr. Slauson ends up going to the house with a flashlight, and he calls out to someone named Davy, demanding that he answer him, but he doesn't get a response. That is, until he enters a bedroom, and he finds the body of Eileen, now made up to resemble one of the mannequins, and he's horrified by the sight. He ends up heading back out to the museum, where he finds Becky and Molly looking at old pictures of his wife, causing him to again reminisce. What are you looking at? Mr. Slauson's photo album. This must be his brother. You're a regular little snoop, Molly. It was on the coffee table. Mr. Slauson might not be too happy if he found you checking through his pictures. Becky. What? Look at this. It was probably his wife, so what? Don't you see? See what? She looks just like that mannequin there. You're right. How weird. How do you suppose he did a mannequin of his wife? I don't know. Maybe it's just his way of remembering her. I loved her very much. I wanted to keep her memory alive forever. This was the best way I know how. That's the whole purpose of wax museums, you know, to keep the memory of the past alive. And it's easier for me this way. She was very beautiful. She still is. I didn't find her. Uh, she probably went back down to the jeep. By herself? Without telling us? Well, where else could she be? Frustrated at the entire situation, the girls are no longer willing to simply wait around. So after Mr. Slauson leaves to look again, they also head out to the night to search for their friends. As they walk out into the woods, they think they hear Eileen giggling from the house, and both of them assume that she is with Woody. Becky, though, is annoyed that the two of them would cause such a fuss, and is determined to investigate to confront them. But Molly herself is afraid, not wanting to cause more trouble, and wanting just to see things resolved, so she opts to stand outside at a distance and wait before going back to the museum. Becky ends up climbing in through an open window and makes her way through the home, following the noises of Eileen giggling. Trying to be funny, she sort of sees the shape of her friend and starts to call out that she knows they're both there, but then quickly becomes frightened when no one answers her. She cries to negotiate the dark rooms, with various dummies in the house silently following her as she makes her way through. She eventually comes up to a dark figure who seems to be wearing Eileen's clothes, but when it turns around, it's revealed to be yet another dummy, and Becky is suddenly tackled and subdued by a grumbling masked man who controls a swarm of dummies with him, and she loses consciousness. She wakes up to find herself strapped down in a basement workshop, put next to Jerry, and another traveler named Tina, as played by Don Jeffrey Nelson, 
who fill her in on their current situation. Becky. Jerry. You all right? Who is he? It's Lawson's crazy brother. Where are the others? I don't know. What's he going to do to us? He's going to kill us. I was stopping for gas along the highway. I never even saw him coming. He's crazy. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. The masked man, who we assume is Davy, enters, and in front of the other teens, ends up killing Tina, covering her face with plaster and chemicals, starting the slow, painful process of turning her into a dummy, all while she sobs. Jerry, who has been chewing through his ropes this entire time, is finally able to get himself free, and he tries to attack their captor, but the masked man overpowers and restrains him again. Taunting them and insulting his brother in the process, he demonstrates that he can move objects with his mind. She's a pretty girl. My brother didn't know about her. I kept her hidden here. He doesn't know much, my brother. He's kind of stupid. All he cares about is that foolish museum of his. starts to panic, and thus she exits again, wandering out into the darkness of the woods, calling for her friends. But she finds herself being lured further and further away into the dark, thinking she can hear them whispering her name. Davy springs out from a bush at her, holding Woody's head, which in turn screams at the girl, and begins to chase her into the night. 
As she runs through the dark, she ends up slamming into Mr. Slauson, who calms her down. Slauson realizes from her description that it's his brother Davy out there, gives the young woman a gun for self-defense. He drives back to the wax museum and leaves her alone as he goes to investigate what's going on inside. While she is waiting out front, a hooded figure looms up from behind and tries to attack, and Molly levels the gun, shooting her attacker, only to find that the weapon is loaded with blanks. The figure then removes his mask to reveal himself to be none other than Mr. Slauson, who promptly grabs Molly and ties her up and brings her back into the residence. Molly awakens tied up in bed with Mr. Slauson talking to her, revealing his madness and using the dummy of Eileen to make his point. Well, good. I see you're awake. You're a pretty lucky girl, you know, to be surrounded by so many warm friends. And look who else is with us. And you pull yourself together and you say hello to our patient. <laughs> Isn't she something? You're insane. You oughtn't to say things like that. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> now, uh, let's set things straight here. You treat me right, and I'll be good to you. I can do anything I want with you. You can become one of these, you know. <laughs> I can oblige. Such a pretty girl. Mr. Slauson, please let me go. Oh, I can't. Becky and Jerry are able to once again get themselves free while their captor was out and about. Using a discarded broken file that they find on the floor, they use it to cut their bonds, and again they attempt to make their escape from the basement, inadvertently splitting up at one point and hiding by blending in with the other dummies in an attempt to avoid detection from their masked figure. Jerry is cornered, though, and literally breaks through a window to escape Davy. But instead of following the young man out into the darkness, he instead chases after Becky. Becky, on the run, ends up encountering Mr. Slauson, who collects her and takes her back to the wax museum, promising to take care of her, putting her in the Wild West gallery and going off to get a first aid kit. After he leaves the room, that's when a woody dummy arrives and starts to distract Becky, allowing an animatronic Indian chief to hurl a throwing knife into the back of the young woman's head, killing her all while Mr. Slauson watches. The dummies end up gathering around Molly and take care of her. They give her water. They mop her brow. That is, until Davy comes in to collect her. He brings her to a different room of the house, where his mask is removed, and it is now confirmed once and for all that Slauson and Davy are not actually brothers. They're the same person. 
a split personality housed inside of a man who has telekinetic abilities, which allows for him to control and move all of his various mannequins with extreme precision, as well as being able to project their voices. He gives a full display of his various powers to Molly, causing a room full of dummies to all sing and move and try to grab at her, frightening her out of her wits. He reveals that the real Davy is long dead, and he moves her into his room. Molly was spared because she reminds him of his late wife, and he puts her face over Molly's as she begs for him to let her go. Slauson instead makes her say that she loves him, and when she does, he angrily begins to rant at her about how hurt he was that she left him for Davy. Slauson has a moment of clarity, and he again admits that he killed both his wife and his brother when he found out they were having an affair. He explains to Molly that he can never let her go. Jerry arrives at the door, and he begins to break his way in, swinging an axe. But that, too, is just a ruse, another cruel trick that Slauson plays. Because Jerry is now long dead, and the Jerry that stands in front of them is just a dummy that Slauson has converted. Molly completely breaks with reality, watching as Slauson dances about holding the dummy of his deceased wife, surrounded by his menagerie of various mannequins, all singing and laughing. So much so that he doesn't pay attention that Molly has picked up the axe that was left on the floor and ends up planting it in the back of the deranged man. Completely now crazed herself, Molly in the morning drives off in the functioning jeep, a deranged grin on her face, with the preserved bodies of all four of her friends along for the ride as the credits roll. Jeez, where do you start with this one? Well, here, let's, like usual, talk about what works. Nothing about the character of Slauson and his situation is outright explained, especially in the beginning. And that has sort of thrown some, but in my humble opinion, I think it's marvelous. You know, you got these passing through strangers, and they're dealing with a situation that is simply madness for them. They get to live out this fever dream played out before us. Black is white, up is down, this kindly but weird old man seemingly has an army of mechanical dummies who do all of his bidding, and he has this bizarre, rageful, angry brother lurking out in the woods, plus his own strange powers to contend with. Nothing that they encounter and see can be trusted with their eyes. And with that setup, Connors is really chewing the scenery here, and he plays Slauson as this perfect psychopath this broken, sad, and lonely man who also just happens to have telekinetic powers and a split personality that's vying for control at any given moment. Now, some may say that whole setup is a weakness because none of it gets explained, but again, I'm inclined to agree with the author Jay Tunzelli of The Daily Grindhouse 
It's him who points out that Slauson and the terror that he creates work so well because we as the audience never quite have a full picture of what's going on at any given time. We have to piece it all together from the various actions and the weird side comments that we see. So instead of having a villain, as Tonzelli would say, sits down like a Bond villain and he lays it all on the table for us, saying, here's how I brought the mannequins to life, and here's how I learned to move objects with my mind, and here's how I resurrect the dead. Forget about all that. You're barking up the wrong tree here, and you're way, way, way in the wrong film. Connors, the way he plays that generalized rage towards both his wife and his deceased brother, that aspect of his personality that he funnels into the split of Davy that resides within him, that is amazingly well done. Slauson himself is the genius behind all the mechanical dummies. Slauson is the one who killed his own wife and his brother when they tried to cheat on him. And then he blames it all on the sibling. His powers don't need to be explained. Why should they be? By the time our characters are finally exposed to their killer, he's no longer trying to mask his identity. Nobody wants to stick around at that moment and ask really the whys of the mental abilities. They're just trying to survive the night. And literally at that point in the story, they're surrounded by laughing, cackling, killer mannequins. They really don't need to know the cliff notes. Throw in the fact that the various mannequins themselves speak and move and are just designed to be so off-putting. And that Slauson as a character can manipulate them. That he can take the bodies of his victims and then reanimate them to be perfect. All with his mental powers. Everything we see with Slauson as a villain just once again becomes an exercise in the warping of reality. And Connors knows this is a fun character and he gets to play both sides of that dual personality and he's clearly having fun with it with Slauson being the nice guy who's cracking up and Davy being the rough sensual brutal killer Schmoller took great pains to cover the fact that Connors was the villain of the story proper so much so that he literally gives a credit to Davy, to a non-existent actor. He used the name Shiler Kobe, which is the name of his own son, to throw people off the scent and to keep them away from the film's twist ending. And while Connors is able to really ramp up the horror, I have to say there's a real decent amount of comedy to be found here. For me, where that really shines, the dinner scene, where they're about to sit down and have soup, that is put front and center and that's a lot of fun. Connors as Slauson sits down across the table where he is sharing his soup and arguing, in air quotes, with his brother, Davy, and or you can take it as his deceased wife, only to reveal that he's just ranting at himself, commenting on crackers, and it works for both horror and for comedy simultaneously. It's nice and hot. Let's eat. 
Yes, it's very good. You want some crackers? I'd like some more crackers, please. That's what I said. Yes, the crackers are very good. Aren't the crackers good? Oh, I got to fix that. Look, I would be remiss if I didn't stop to give proper respect to one Jocelyn Jones with her portrayal of Molly. Molly's an interesting character. Normally, in these kind of movies, you need to have a balance where the survivor, this being Molly, would of course be the sweetest and kindest member of the group. But this isn't like most horror films, because the group that wanders into Slauson's Oasis, it's not your usual band of archetypes that you'd find in a slasher movie. Pretty much all of these young folks are decent, clean-cut kids who, while, yeah, they're, they're there to have some fun, they're all respectful, they're nice, and they're honestly doing everything they said they were. They were just attempting to fix their broken-down car. They are unaware that the person behind the stop and the damage to their vehicle is none other than their deranged host. Thus, Molly is the quintessential final girl here, and she's the one that gets to have a satisfying arc of both surviving this night of horrors and gets to be driven mad at the end of our story, sobbing to herself as she drives away with mannequins that have been made from the corpses of her friends, broken and gibbering, the final victim of Slauson's own madness. It could be a moment that could have been done wrong and could have come off as very funny versus the intended desire to be horrifying. And I think Jones as an actress really strikes that perfect balance of making it a real slam bang ending and selling us on her own terror. Now, as a final note, while the director, as we will see with the various viewers, was dismissive and worried about the PG rating. What you have here is a movie that is truly in the same vein as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And what I mean by that is, if you go back and watch the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one thing that you have to kind of like look out for is, as a film, it doesn't actually have a ton of violence or gore. Almost all of the violence happens off-screen or out of frame. There's, you know, someone gets struck but you don't see anything, or you'll see a blood spot on the floor but never the actual incident. And, you know, just the image of someone, again, swinging an axe, swinging a chainsaw, stroking someone across the face with a hammer. But once you get past that, it's all left up to the theater of the mind. You fill in the gaps with more horrifying imagery. And thus, much like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what we hear see in Tourist Trap is really a chaste film. Honestly, stupendously chaste in this regard. There is no sex. There is no nudity. There's no real foul language. Instead, you just get a lot of terrified people locked in a home surrounded by a bunch of grotesque dummies popping out from all angles at them, shouting, laughing, screaming, grabbing at them, in some cases, shooting. And that's the perfect mashup of the uncanny valley effect meeting a good old-fashioned house of horrors. And what I gotta tell you is, it really works. For a movie that's PG, this 
indeed can be terrifying. So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was this film received? Well, that's probably not going to shock you. Not very well. Tourist Trap was released on March 16th of 1979 to a resounding meh. Critics were at best mixed with their assessment. Box Office Magazine was probably the most kind. They noted that cheap thrills and violence abound here, citing that the film is not for the squeamish, and they figured it would be quite popular with teens heading into the drive-ins. But that optimism and sort of overlooking of what the actual plot offers was quickly shattered by the rest of the reviewers in other publications. Now, Variety's Berg was at least a little more complimentary before dropping the hammer, noting that, yeah, this is a film that has some appropriately menacing music and does occasionally employ some decent special effects, but the plot is too loaded with cliches, from the concept to the individual bits of dialogue, to be taken seriously. And yet, it's not silly enough to be regarded as delightfully bad. Berg continued, though, wrapping his overall review with the item's outlook appear to be dim overall especially with a lack of blood and guts and that's going to prevent this from catching on as good drive-in fare ouch and i say ouch because he's kind of right now the monthly film bulletins tim pulling was a little more cutting stating that the film was wholly unimaginative as an exercise in low-budget horror that plundered Psycho for its central plot gimmick in a fashion that is more ham-fisted than it is bare-faced. Damn! Now, I'll say this, the one thing that can become clear when you look back and read a lot of these negative reviews, they spend a lot of time comparing the film to both Texas Chainsaw Massacre and to Psycho, which is funny because you can tell right off the bat the people who are unaware that both of those stories themselves were based on the same real-life murderer, Ed Gein. So if you're attempting to claim that this low-budget horror movie isn't exactly as good as something that Hitchcock had done, well, yeah, no kidding. And you're not even making a fair apples-to-apples comparison. It's the same way that you can't hold Texas Chainsaw Massacre up against Psycho as equals. Yeah, they had the same source material, but they did two totally separate things with it, and both work in their own right, but you can't make those comparisons. So by saying Tourist Trap is derivative of Psycho, it's not fair. You're not even comparing the same sports, you're not even in the same league. Now to combat some of this, Tourist Trap was heavily advertised before it was released by distributor Compass International Pictures, and what they were hoping to see would be a payoff similar to what they experienced with some other small horror films they had released previously. You know, like hoping for a Halloween situation, where you had a small movie that was made for a really low budget and then came back with millions of dollars worth of ticket sales. No such luck here. Instead. Audience members absolutely voted with their feet, and in the end, Schmoller's fears would prove to be absolutely correct when it came to the PG rating. 
diehard horror fans, they avoided the film that boasted the PG rating because they assumed it would not be to their liking. It wouldn't be hard enough for them. It didn't have the blood. It didn't have the guts. And back in the day for a horror film, it didn't have the nudity and the sex. Families weren't going to take their children to see a horror film, regardless of the PG rating. Look at this. It's a bunch of hideous, leering, laughing mannequins. They're going to keep folks away. What would happen? Well, the film would close in short order, and it was unable to break even. So what would happen? Tourist Trap would go on to have a new life as a cult film on video bolstered by rentals, and also receiving praise coming from author Stephen King, who, much like he did with Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, he recognized the power of having everyday horror come in the form of some dusty old wax figures at an out-of-the-way tourist spot. Time has increasingly been kind to Tourist Trap, especially with Charles Band's various projects rolling on over the years, because he retained the rights to Tourist Trap. That had fallen in as part of Band's Full Moon featured library, and really, that helped garner multiple generations of viewers, not to mention giving Band the ability to say it was just one of the handful of films that he has available to him that were actually able to say they had a theatrical release. Now, for his part, Schmoller didn't go on to do bad work afterwards. No, he kept on trucking. He'd go on to direct some marvelous B-movie features in the coming years, such as 1982's The Seduction with Morgan Fairchild, or the grimy horror film Crawl Space in 1986 with Klaus Kinski. And of course, he was the man who directed the original Puppet Master in 1989 for producer Charles Band. It would be that final project that the two men would have a falling out on, with Schmuller walking away after Band refused to pay the director for his work. Now, as it would happen, uh, Connors would keep working even after Tourist Trap. Unfortunately for him, he never got this chance to become the new face of horror. He never got his Vincent Price renaissance. But again, he still got to work and continue to make pictures after this. Joyce Jones would appear in a few other projects before she would go on to teach acting classes herself, tying into her own method. Ultimately, the brightest star on this project would of course end up being Tanya Roberts, who the following year would get her big television break appearing in 1980 on Charlie's Angels, and then going on to do larger budget films, some of which we've covered, some of which we've still yet to, but honestly, those are stories for another day. Look, I can't honestly sit here and claim to you that Tourist Trap is a horror film that is going to change lives out there, or it's going to blow away a bunch of diehard horror fans, or even slasher fans. Rather, here's what I can tell you. This is a fascinating exercise in setting a vibe that is undeniably weird. One that is going to leave a viewer unsettled, even with a lack of blood and guts. And because it's done in such a superb way, I would argue that Tourist Trap is a great bit of starter horror for people who think they may be a bit squeamish when it comes to seeing Gru and Viscera, who are not sure that they want to watch a true slasher movie from this time period, but they still want to see something that is absolutely scary and disturbing. 
so it's a great stepping stone into a larger world for them. That, and when you compare it to what people stream these days now on Netflix or Hulu or Paramount or whatever you're watching, I have to say, the violence here and the atmosphere found will pale in comparison to what a lot of kids are watching these days in shows like Stranger Things or the newest iteration of Creepshow. Which makes me double down and challenge you to say this, do yourself a favor, go see Tourist Trap. You will be glad that you did. The version of Tourist Trap screened here at the LSCE was the Full Moon Features 2013 DVD release, which comes fairly bare bones with just the film itself and a small library of trailers from other Full Moon offerings. It can still be found along with many, many different versions of the film out there, and if one is so inclined, you can go out and get yourself a copy for $29.95 on Amazon.com today. I would not recommend you do that, because there are far newer versions of the film that have been put out, and what's more, they have better features, such as the 2021 Blu-ray release that comes with an uncut version of the film, which adds five more minutes of footage, plus it includes director's commentary, interviews with Smaller himself, and a library of trailers to view. And all of that can be yours now for the price of $17.06, which is a steal if you ask me. Now, I'll tell you this, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should purchase your movies. We just think in this day and age, it's so very important to still support physical media. And that way, these fine companies who own the rights to these films that we all know and all love will keep releasing that wonderful content to us. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? You getting more of the content that you know and love? Besides, Tourist Trap itself, it's such a weird and unique offering. You would be passing up on a great chance to see something that is both highly disturbing and honestly well executed. And what kind of film fan would want to pass up on those kinds of opportunities? Hmm? So what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Tourist Trap today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you'll join us again. If you like what we're doing, that would be the LSCE, Dachshunds, and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that follow, subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here just to give you a shout-out on the show. Think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. And I say all that to tell you, we yet again have another one. Entitled, Get Ready for a Thorough Review, from reviewer CFAT, he writes, Chris brings a well-researched approach to cinema classics as well as deep-cut cult films. If you like backstory on films, you'll enjoy this podcast. Oh, jeez. Thank you so much for that, CFAT. 
We do strive to be thorough and we try to provide both fun and interesting background on just how these films came to be and it's always our goal to try to do it justice. So I'm really glad that you concur. You see folks, it's just that easy. So if you like what you're hearing and you say, hey, those are words and I got words, then you too can leave a review like that today and I will read it here. In the meantime, you can please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Stitcher, so you can find us there. Give us a spin if that's your jam. I'm also proud to say we're on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, you can simply say out loud, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on both Podchaser as well as Good Pods. Those are both podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. You can find us there. Give us follows and reviews if you could please. And hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a boost in the old rankings. The more reviews, the increased likes, the follows, that all affects the marvelous algorithms that are out there. And it makes us more searchable. And then we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do! Do you have any questions for us? Any comments? Any movies you want us to cover? Anything you thought I got wrong? We would love to hear from you. Please send us an email or an audio clip. Send it to lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? We use it here. Follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, feel free to send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, it's crazy. So take care out there. Please wash your hands. Continue to wear a mask if you feel like it. Please stay healthy, be well, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon.